Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine and the author of Mistaken Identity, Asad Haider. His writing can be found in The Baffler, N Plus One, The Point, Salon, and elsewhere. Asad, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So just on a personal note, and before we dig a little bit deeper, I'm interested to know what whiteness means to you. How does whiteness show up in your life? Well, I think that uh, whiteness is, um, in, in our experience, whiteness is granted the space of the neutral and the universal. It's just being normal is to be white. And then to other people have races and they belong to racial categories. And even in a lot of the uh, language of social justice, this assumption is still there that there is, um, that there are different racial groups that people belong to. And for these uh, groups, people who are, who are members of these groups, race is an issue. Uh, whereas uh, white people are seen as a kind of uh, raceless baseline. And that uh, is, uh, it's a major problem in the way that we understand race because whiteness is something that's been historically and socially constructed. Uh, It's not a category that has been here forever. Um, And intuitively we know this when we understand um, where, where, uh, what our family lineages are, where people came from and where they went and so on. Uh, so I think there's this kind of uh, splitting of whiteness between the idea that it's just kind of a neutral state and the fact that we do know that it's uh, something which is produced by racial categories. Uh, racial categories aren't just what's different from whiteness, both these other racial categories and whiteness are produced by the same process of differentiating people and d- dividing them up into groups. And so, I mean, you're, uh, you live in America, you've lived through Trump's America, you're now living through Biden's America. Um, do, does the nature of whiteness shift under different political regimes, if we could call it that? I think that it's certainly um, shifted over time. Uh, for example, I would say that uh, the way that the neutrality of whiteness uh, expresses itself or is represented has become different. When I was younger, uh, mm. when I was growing up, I, you know, I mean, the, the, the neutrality or seeming universality of whiteness was something that uh, was really based on seeing other people as foreign, uh, maybe as dangerous, maybe as uh, not quite of the same status. That certainly still exists in many different ways, and it certainly uh, um, is part of the rhetoric and discourse that surrounds Trump and and so on. Mm. But there is also uh, the um, 
the development, as I said, of a certain kind of language about race, anti-racism, social justice, and so on, uh, which talks about white privilege, you know, it talks about uh, whiteness as a problem, but it still uh, assumes that the, the kind of uh, natural standpoint is that of whiteness. I, that, that I think is uh, a, an important uh, thing to recognize and it's an important development. And it's a sense in which we still haven't uh, really escaped from whiteness, I think, because even in our uh, kind of critical race language, yeah, um, that's still there. And well, so I really wanted to talk to you about this particular issue of identity politics, because your book, Mistaken Identity, which was first published in 2018, is a searing critique I think we can fairly say of identity politics and my first question has to be you know how did that book come about I mean why why did you feel the need to write it and it felt it feels very urgent when you read it so what um what was really behind uh me writing the book was that I became politicized I became uh, interested in politics through, first of all, through, um, you know, seeing uh, the consequences of S September 11th running up through to the Iraq war. This was a very formative time and became very aware of the, um, of the uh, reality of American imperialism and uh, what that meant on a global scale. Uh, but that was, you know, uh, going beyond that to a kind of uh, developed political perspective uh, meant that I really studied the uh, movements against racism in the United States because that was really the world around me. And I was, you know, very conscious of race and racism growing up. And uh, I saw that this was not just something that was part of my uh, sort of uh, very distinct and unique experience, but was a part of a broader set of social and structural problems. And that there was an entire history in the United States of people, uh, the, the, of the black freedom movement, of people struggling against racism and, and, and taking that to its furthest conclusions, meaning that they were struggling against uh, every kind of oppression and wanted, you know, uh, uh, a society that's based fundamentally on human equality and on uh, people controlling their own destinies. And mm. that, that, kind of, um, that kind of radicalism uh, was really what brought me into politics. And what I saw in more recent years, um, as I said, as a lot of the discourse changed, uh, more people became so there, there was a lot of progress about race. I mean, that a lot of things it became possible to talk about. Uh, you know, the fact that people talk about white privilege on TV or something like that, whatever mm. we may think of the concept, I, I can't really imagine that happening uh, on TV when I was uh, a kid. Mm. So um, there's been progress in that sense, but um, the way that people are talking about race and that they were talking about race maybe, you know, five, six years ago when I started to work on the things that eventually went into the book, 
uh, I was noticing that the uh, language about race, that the, the way that people were um, uh, articulating their opposition to racism lacked that kind of radicalism that I had uh, read about in history and mm. the history of social movements. It became much more about the recognition of who you are, of the group that you're supposed to belong to, and that idea that you would take this to the most um, uh, radical conclusions that you want to work for the freedom of everybody, that seemed uh, to be an inaccessible position. And it, 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 there was alongside that a great difficulty in the practical problems of political organizing, where it mm. seemed as though um, there's, there's certain moments in which there, people are so suspicious of each other on identity on an identity basis that uh, they don't manage to work together and mm. they don't manage to achieve any of the stated aims. And after having experiences like that, uh, I began to think that it's important to go back to that legacy of this revolutionary legacy uh, of uh, struggling against racism and to uh, kind of be faithful to that and, and show how it remains relevant. So I really want to pick up on a few things you said there, because um, I mean, related to that, you say in the book that identity politics is an individualist method. Um, and I'm very interested in understanding how you uh, how you interpret the ways in which identity has become so integral to this conversation. Um, and, and firstly, maybe let's talk about what you understand by identity politics and with regards to this idea of an individualist method, do mass movements like BLM, who have, which have had such a, a huge impact globally, offer a counter view to that perspective? Well, so there are many questions embedded here. Uh, yes, there were. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, when we use the phrase identity politics, it's very problematic just because so many different kinds of meanings are, are put in that kind of right. vessel. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, and so many conversations about it, people are simply uh, speaking at cross purposes because uh, each of them has a different understanding of what that means. And so some people think that uh, anytime you talk about issues related to race or gender or sexuality or whatever other uh, categories they might include under identity, that anytime you talk about that, that that's identity politics. I think that's, um, that's, I think that's very kind of uh, general and vague because I don't, you know, I don't know that we haven't yet established that identity is even a good term to describe race. You know, that's kind of an assumption. Mm. Uh, is, is that true? Uh, yeah. We can get into that. Um, yes. So why I, what I do, in the book is like, look, I, I can't just give my own definition and say, okay, everybody should accept this. Uh, and I also don't want to just say that um, there's no meaning or content. So I, I look at the history of the term. And, you know, that's when I talk about the Combahee River Collective, which really introduced this term mm. um, in the Black Feminist Statement. And uh, they had a politics uh, of the kind that I described. I mean, they, they stated quite clearly that uh, 
when black women become free, then everyone will become free because the, the, their identities as black women uh, put them at a point of exclusion from all of these social movements they had participated in. You know, in, in the women's liberation movement when, in which it was assumed that white women represented the interests of all women. Yeah. Uh, in the, you know, black nationalist movements, for example, which often spoke in terms of reclaiming manhood and things like that. Uh, and of course, you know, more broadly, the anti-war movement and New Left, which, um, which, which had a, a very, in, in which white men played a very dominant role. And so uh, their identities uh, represented this kind of marginalization and exclusion. So by asserting a politics that came, uh, that, that didn't deny their identities, by asserting their agency as black women, uh, that was a way to turn this around, to, to kind of break up those hegemonic identities that had been the basis of this exclusion. And that was the path to everybody's freedom. And thus and, create a form of universalism? Is that what's underlying that? That you can create universalism from those very specific experiences? It's, that's an interesting question, because, I mean, to say that, to speak of everybody's freedom is certainly a universalist statement. Uh, they don't talk about universalism in the in the text itself, so uh, I wouldn't impute a particular term to the to to the author to the collective, and, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, the they can speak for themselves now and have sure. very openly. If, I mean, you look at, for example, Barbara Smith, one of the major authors of the text. Uh, she she's very open and uh, she's very critical of a lot of what today passes for identity politics. She's very uh, um, pointed about saying, this is not what we meant, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so yeah. what is it that we're criticizing then? What is, what is it that you're pointing the finger at within, ident within what gets called identity politics that people should be aware of from your perspective? Right, so uh, as I said, there's first of all, just a vague definition. I think that we can set that aside because it, it's not, it doesn't give us any real content, makes too many presumptions. Then you have this uh, Combahee River Collective definition, and that gives us the idea of a very specific, very uh, radical kind of politics. Then you have the way it's been used more recently. And th this is also, it's not as though anyone will give a specific definition, but you can see from the kind of casual usage of the word and from kind of putting together uh, different attitudes and practices that are really common in politics today, you can get an idea of what is kind of, what, 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 it's, um, what it's part of, I guess, what that term is part of. And that's uh, a politics which is about um, centering on uh, your group belonging, uh, what, whatever group you're said to belong to, based on some kind of intrinsic attribute that you have, that's part of yourself. Mm. And that your experience is the foundation uh, of your politics and that yes. somebody else who belongs to another group who has a different experience is not going to be able to understand your politics and is not going to be able to really participate in them, but, but has to recognize that uh, you have your own thing and, you know, the expression is to stay in your lane, right? 
Uh, I was going to mention that. So, and, and, yeah. and added to that, the idea you can't critique that set of politics, presumably either, since you're imputed as not being able to fully understand them. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the consequence of that is what for the struggle against racism and the, in the struggle against whiteness in your perspective, does it disintegrate the struggle? Do we, do we end up completely factionalized in these sort of separate silos all fighting one angle of whiteness? I mean, what, what's the outcome? Well, one thing that you could say is that when uh, politics becomes associated with the self, let's say, who you are and who someone else is, then you're kind of starting backwards. You're going in a backwards direction because, you know, somebody isn't white because of something that's part of who they are. Uh, that's actually, you know, that may seem to be common sense, but that it's actually quite the other way around because mm -hmm. there are social and historical processes that are very independent of who you are, what you experience, or what you believe yourself to be, that end up classifying you in a racial category. And that's why um, people uh, who were from all over Europe, who had all different kinds of languages and national cultures, and in fact, some of whom were viewed as uh, inferior and subhuman uh, within Europe itself, within the hierarchies of Europe, uh, slowly all get incorporated into this category of the white race over mm. time. And that's, that's not a process that even has to do, you know, I mean, it's like white, is the skin isn't actually white. There are all kinds of differences people have. And to talk about skin color even is a fairly arbitrary uh, characteristic. You, you know, you could, you could choose all kinds of different physical characteristics mm. to privilege as the um, uh, uh, distinction between different groups of people. They're all arbitrary. And what we know from, you know, if we look at science uh, uh, on this, is that racial categories are not very meaningful in telling us uh, about human variation. We'll yeah. find more variation in a so-called racial group than we will between the average of one so-called racial group and another. You know, so these are really uh, these categories are uh, historical and social. They're not natural and they're not part of who we are. They are social processes that categorized us. And that's important. So if we use those same categories of, of race that have been used and constructed to separate as the basis for a rebellion against that structure, can that can that provide us with a sufficient grounding for unpicking uh, the structure mm -hmm. itself? I don't know if that's a clear question. I mean, it's very well, clear in my head when I was thinking it, but... <laughs> um, no, it, it's a very... Um, it, it, certainly such questions can be hard to put in words, but it's a, but the question is obviously... Uh, it's very obvious why that uh, question is important. And it's a complicated question because... If somebody is uh, oppressed, subjected to violence, subjected to heightened exploitation because they've been classified in a racial group, uh, you can't just pretend that that doesn't exist. The fact that race is a historically and socially constructed category doesn't mean that it's not real. Mm. It's, it's not real in the sense that that's not really a description of, of what human beings are or what groups human beings naturally fall into. In that sense, it's not real. But as 
a part of our uh, society as a part of our social relations, it is real and mm. it has been very real and has ver had very real consequences. And so uh, to act politically, there is going to have to be a moment in which people uh, demand their self-determination uh, as this group, because that's the group they've been assigned to and the basis on which uh, they have been uh, dominated. So there, you know, it's, it's in a similar sense that if, you know, if, if you have a politics which is about international solidarity, mm. uh, that, for example, Malcolm X had this politics, you know, we find, or if you go into um, uh, other movements, we'll find other versions of this, of internationalism. Uh, can you ha just have an internationalist politics? Let's say in the case of Israel and Palestine, you know, some mm -hmm. people will say, well, look, um, we, we need to have a kind of universalist perspective about this. This would be, for, in my view, a kind of false universalism, which would say, well, we don't really agree with the idea uh, that people should be divided into nations. So both the Palestinians and the Israelis will have to uh, accept the fact that they have to let go of their uh, national categories. But the thing is that Palestinians are oppressed on a national level. They're oppressed through uh, these national categories, the constitution of uh, Israel as a nation which dominates Palestinians. So Palestinians are going to have to assert their national self-determination. They, they, they have to do that in order for there to be any possibility of internationalism in the future. You can't have internationalism when one nation is oppressed by another. Mm. So, so does that mean whatever categories and however unfair and actually completely made up these categories are they do have to provide the basis for maybe an initial stage of the emancipatory project or the pushback against inequality is that what we can infer from what you've said that's how i think often um people who are involved in such movements understood it yeah uh, certainly that's true of nationalist movements around the world uh, it was true, for example, of the Black Panther Party in the United States. Uh, they conceived of nationalism as a kind of uh, as something that you had to pass through in order to arrive at internationalism. Actually, the, eventually, the you know Huey Newton of the Black Panther Party came to a, a position which was much more suspicious of nationalism. Mm. Uh, but uh, but but that is going to be a moment in politics and is there going to be some kind of linear sequence you know which first for you first you go through that step then you have the next step that that i i don't know and, and certainly there are ways that uh asserting a national identity or a racial identity also has major risks you know i mean it has With the risk of um closing off the development to internationalism or to universalism. Well, that's kind of where I was trying to get at because yeah. you mentioned the Israel-Palestine conflict and obviously, um, you know, the Jewish population would say, you know, are also an oppressed group historically and mm -hmm. so have found a, a form of nationalism upon which to found a, uh, I suppose, a resistance to um, that historical form of oppression, uh, but which, you know, uh, I think without doubt today, uh, we can say with 
without any uh, without any uncertainty causes the oppression of another set of people. And so I'm just wondering whether within the model that says that we kind of internalize the identities upon which we are oppressed, we don't end up replicating the very divisions that they were intended to create. And how do we move from that to a universalist um, you know, form of emancipation. And, and bringing your book here, you know, there's a line that stuck out for me, uh, particularly as so many people who are racialized as white struggle with the conversation on whiteness. And you say in the book, the struggle against white supremacy has in fact been a struggle for universal emancipation. Yeah. Um, and and I would put to you that, that, that why is it therefore not understood in those terms? You know, is it that people who are racialized as white who don't jump on to the wider struggle, anti-racist struggle, want people of color to be oppressed? Is that what, the, you know, is it is it a psychology of wanting to be the dominator? Or how do you interpret the fact that many people don't conceive of the struggle against whiteness as a universalist or universal project for emancipation? Well, at the psychological level, I mean, Maybe you have the um, you have people who want to defend their whiteness, but now you also have people who uh, their primary psychological orientation is white guilt, and I don't think that's any more useful. Mm. <laughs> that's that that's and the the you made a very important point, which is that when I'm talking about uh, the idea of self-determination, whether for a nation or a, a racial group or whatever, um, that is within the framework of universal emancipation. So mm. it's not um, that, that, so again, it's not like linear stages that I'm advocating in which first there would be uh, an identity-based self-determination and then there would be some universalism that came afterwards. Mm. I mean, the, in the movements, um, you look at the civil rights movement, you look at the, the black power movement too. I think that universal emancipation was at the uh, 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 foundation of the politics of these movements. Uh, you see it in what people say, you know, I, I mean, for example, a lot of people talk about Martin Luther King at the end of his life, um, coming out against the war in Vietnam, talking about uh, the, uh, poor people's movement and giving this kind of internationalist universalist vision. Well, if, when you really look at the history, he was saying these things in 1955 at the very beginning of his involvement in the civil rights movement. Mm. Uh, he was talking, he's, he was, he's saying things like there's a world movement in which people are rebelling against their exploiters. He says these things. Um, Malcolm X, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people talk about uh, last year of his life, again, there's a conversion to Orthodox Islam, and uh, he, he has this uh, very uh, explicitly articulated internationalism, but even earlier during the Nation of Islam years, you will see him talking about, uh, he, you will see him invoking uh, all of these revolts around the world. He'll talk about China, he'll talk about Vietnam, he'll talk about uh, the Bandung Conference and so on. Mm. Uh, the, the, so there's, there was always this internationalist reference point. Um, and so self-determination is a part of the project of universal emancipation in the, sen in the sense that I'm describing it. So I wouldn't, uh, I, I think that if it's, if it's uh, uprooted from that, 
then there's a problem that that's where you get a lot of these problems that we've been talking about because mm. universal emancipation has to be the basic orientation. It, it's, uh, it reminds me, there's a line in Mahmoud Mamdani's book, uh, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, where he, he's speaking to um, an Israeli scholar um, about the Holocaust and the, the lessons to be taken from the Holocaust. And the scholar responds to him, you know, never again, that's the lesson that we should take. And Mahmoud Mamdani reflects on it after he he's walked away from the conversation. And he said that that answer lends itself to two very potential, potentially two very different outcomes. One is never again to us and the other is never again to anyone. And those are two completely different projects. Um, and so I'm just in, in, in the context of identity politics, I'm just very interested in understanding the connection between a sort of adoption of a, a category of meaning that may have been constructed in a in a power relation that, that ultimately we're fighting um, and and how that can form the basis for. Uh, for a wider liberation movement. But we, we, let's move on to a, another point. It's a related point. You, in the book, you say the infinite regress of quote unquote, checking your privilege will eventually unmask everyone as inauthentic. At a time where everyone's calling everyone to check their privilege, can you clarify what you mean by that? What, what, can you elaborate? Well, you know, it, it um, I, found it sort of um, strange. It would be amusing if it weren't somewhat distressing that you know, you'll sit in, uh, in an American university and hear someone saying to someone else that they should check their privilege. And you know, I mean, we're just by virtue of being in the United States, we're vastly more privileged than the majority of the world's population. Sitting right. in a university, you are vastly more privileged than a large portion of the US population. And mm -hmm. you know, whatever, we may have all kinds of ways of defining our group identities uh, that will allow us to say to someone else that you are privileged with relation to me, but you're, you're always gonna be able to shift that and say like, okay, well, you are privileged in relation to this other group and um, we can keep going with that process and keep redefining who people are in such a way that you're never gonna get to the bottom. <laughs> you know, you're never gonna get to the point where, okay, this person can say everybody else around them is privileged mm. and that everybody else has to check their privilege. You will never get that because everybody's got all kinds of different attributes that they can use to define who they are. And someone, you know, whoever has said to someone else, you should check your privilege is going to, there's gonna be a way for that to be said to them. And mm. if, if when you have something that's completely subjective like that about, how I'm compared to you, um, I don't think we're ever really gonna get to talking about the way that our society is structured and why it is that some people have certain kinds of privilege and why it is that some people uh, are deprived at a level that makes it um, impossible or nearly impossible for them to even survive. And we, we have to keep that in perspective. You know, People all around the world, um, are just um, every day they don't know whether they're going to be able to eat or whether a bomb's going to be dropped on them. And we're sitting in a university talking to each other about checking your privilege. And I mean, I, I don't know 
what politics means when you have that juxtaposition. No, I, I yes, thank you for that. Um, one point you make in the book um, very clearly is, is this point about the liberal language of rights, which is currently being used to defend a concrete identity group from injury, physical or verbal. And you say that group ends up defined by its victimhood and individuals end up reduced to their victimized belonging. Is this what you see happening now? And, and how do we get around the use of the liberal language of rights to defend you know, oppressed groups without referring to it? Yeah, this is an interesting point because I think many people uh, are now also suspicious of the liberal language of rights, um, but would still operate on what I'm identifying there as its logic, which is that uh, politics is about um, declaring that you have been injured or have a grievance uh, on the basis of who you are or what group you belong to, and that you should be protected by the state or uh, that your uh, injury should be recognized uh, in some way. Uh, ultimately, I think that it leads us back to that liberal framework in which we're um, thinking of things in terms of protection from the state because there's no other uh, actual political outcome that I think that can lead to. But what mm. I think is important is that we can conceive of politics differently, which is not about recognizing people's victimhood. It's not about protecting victims, but it's about people being active agents, about people actually uh, being able to act, to control their own destinies and to be able to transform the society. And uh, that's what you see in every moment of resistance uh, throughout history, um, you know, the, what do we see in the civil rights movement? It's not uh, like uh, a demand for protection from the state or, you know, there, there is a sense in which this leads to change in the state. It leads to laws and it leads to the state uh, making changes. But the way that politics was practiced was by breaking the law, resisting the state, standing mm -hmm. up to police, going out, um, knowing that you could be killed and uh, demanding uh, a change. And that is, that's, that's powerful. That's uh, what politics is. That's really what politics is about, is when people uh, are able to act and, and act to transform the whole society. And that takes courage and commitment. And that's uh, something that it's difficult to do. <laughs> so it's, it mm. doesn't happen all the time. For sure. Um, I, I want to talk to you about something that comes up a lot in the conversations on whiteness, and that's the idea that, you know, class and race kind of come up against one another in this in this conversation. And in the book, you say that, you know, to talk of the illusion, you talk of the illusion of a division between class and race and that these conversations, um, which, you know, actually, in, when you're having them in the real world, they're often derailed by, you know, people saying, well, oh, wait, you know, but there are poor working class white people, too. And um, the conversation on whiteness ignores them. So I'm just wondering, whether you can expand a little on what you mean by the illusion that there is a division between class and race. Well, th this is uh, a question that has um, been at the center of a lot of the discussions that came after the book that I, you know, in a lot of the 
it's a kind of question that I was asked about a lot uh, because I think for many people, there will, many people have an urge to have that problem solved. Let's have the theory. What is the relationship between class and race? Mm. Uh, let's, let's have the explanation. And, you know, it, it, I realize that the framing of that question is, I think the framing of that question is wrong because when you are just starting with class and race as these huge abstract categories, you can't explain how they're related. That's they're, they're abstractions that are talking about different aspects of a society and a history in which it's not possible to like say, okay, over here we have the things related to class and over here we have the things related to race. So we look at the history of race and class in the United States you know, I mean, where does one draw a line that distinguishes them? Because you have the fact of plantation slavery is at the core of uh, the uh, development of American capitalism. Um, you have a working class that is divided between forced labor and wage labor, and uh, that's being constantly changed by migration, different forms of servitude over time uh, as uh, the 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 let's say the labor regimes change the way that people are compelled to labor changes racial categories also change people get mm. categorized in different ways and so you couldn't like draw a line in that process and say well this part was related to class and this part was related to race you have to explain that specific real process and when we talk about class and we talk about race we're uh, singling out particular aspects of that one process to understand it better. So the relationship between class and race in that sense is already there in concrete history. Uh, and we can't describe it in general as though we could, we, we come up with, this is the relationship between class and race. Now we're going to explain how that's true in the U S how it's true in South Africa, how it's true in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. No, all of these are specific histories and we have to understand them specifically. And I think one of the reasons why that's so important is that if we don't do that and really talk about different processes of racialization, we will end up going back to the idea that race is something that really is part of human beings and it's really part of how we're divided up. Even if we don't believe in the biological idea of race, we end up thinking, that races already exist and some people are oppressed because of their race rather than understanding that there are power relations which produce these racial categories. So what would you say then is your biggest gripe with how we currently have conversations around race or in anti-racism conversations? Um, well, I, my biggest gripe is that uh, we don't, bring it within the framework of universal emancipation. And that, that's something that we were talking about earlier mm. uh, about an emancipatory politics. And, mm. you know, we, I, I think you, we don't, the word universal to me is something of a redundancy. We're talking about emancipation. We mean the emancipation of everyone. And so people have lots of arguments about we're universal. In some ways, there are good reasons to be suspicious of it since many universal kinds of declarations were made uh, by people who owned slaves and so on. We know that history. Mm. Uh, but 
that that doesn't mean the idea of the emancipation of everyone is not valid. And I think that for me, that is uh, the, that, that's a genuine politics. That's the, pol- that's the only politics that to me is worth having. Mm. And uh, one of the things about let's, this phrase, the relationship between race and class is that for a long time in the United States, it was very difficult to talk about class politics. You know, I mean, we, we have such a weak labor movement. Um, the, uh, the, the, the spectrum uh, of uh, political possibility is so constrained, you know, compared to even just to Europe, even compared to the UK. Mm. Um, and uh, the idea that you could have a presidential candidate talking, uh, who des- who's, describes himself as, as socialist, that was a shock, you know, to me. I mean, I, I once again, it's not something I could have imagined as a child. Mm. Uh, when we had the Occupy movement talking about the 99% and the 1%, that was, I mean, are those class categories? I don't know, but it was pointing to the idea that we should talk about class. Yeah. And if class falls out of your politics, then you don't have a politics of, a, of, of emancipation. It's true. I, I mean, let's be... You know, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we can talk about uh, how whiteness um, is, uh, it cuts across class, but at the same time, it's true that there are poor white people uh, who are uh, in miserable conditions and uh, any emancipatory politics, I think also has to to seriously address that, Mm. you know? Um, It does matter if, white people are working uh, for jobs and get evicted from their homes and are starving. That mm. does matter for an emancipatory politics. That, and that, that doesn't mean that now suddenly we don't talk about racism. I mean, th- that doesn't follow at all. So is, is, is class the missing part, part of our current conversation on race? I wouldn't put it uh, that way because we do have people uh, increasingly who talk, who are talking about class now, and there, there you see these polarizations. Uh, because, you know, some people say, okay, well, everything comes down to class. Uh, race is a kind of, uh, it's a, at best, uh, uh, just a sort of um, garbled way of talking about what are really class issues. Uh, at worst, it's a kind of um, uh, way of misdirecting us and distracting us from the real issues. Uh, then you have the kind of um, identity politics that we have been talking about, which um, just puts class to the side and, and just focuses on these questions of individual selfhood and group belonging. And so there's this polarization. And I mm. think neither neither of these positions is really talking about uh, emancipation. And I think to some extent, it seemed to me as I was writing the book that we, that, that, that the fact that class was being pushed out of anti-racist politics was the reason that it had lost its emancipatory character. Mm. I'm not sure that I would put the causality that way now. Interesting. Um, You've changed I, your view. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that I had a clear view about that. 
before um, okay. was kind of a, there were certain intuitions and I would maintain the idea that any emancipatory movement today has to talk about class. Uh, it doesn't mean that talking about class will mean that you have an emancipatory politics, that mm. we, we, we can look back at the history of uh, labor movements and social democracy and so on, and we can see that they were not necessarily emancipatory. Mm. Um, look, but before we go to the quick fire round, I do want to ask you um, about um, something in a recent article that you wrote. You quote Noel Ignatiev's journal with uh, John Garvey, race traitor, and the famous slogan there, which was treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. So how can people who are racialized as white be traitors to whiteness? Well, I think that um, what one of the other things that Noel Ignatia would say, uh, you know, who, he was very fond of very provocative statements. <laughs> he would say things like, you know, the mistake that people, uh, a lot of white people are making is that they think they're white. Uh, yes, and that's, I read that. Know, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so uh, his point is that whiteness is uh, a kind of a fabrication because that's not something, you know, it, that doesn't even have a basis in uh, national borders or a language or whatever. Uh, the idea when you, if you think that you're white, uh, you're making that real, you're making racial categories real. And so I think treason to whiteness is not only, it, it's not a matter of checking your privilege or being, feeling guilty. It's a matter of saying that, uh, these uh, racial categories uh, in general have to be put into question and that we have to support uh, emancipatory politics, which may be about self-determination, which are, net, are about opposing white supremacy, but that's not about us and who we are. That's about changing the social structure. Mm. Um, on that note, we're going to move to our quick fire round. So we have a quick fire round. You you have um, about 30 seconds, no more, to respond to um, a series of four very rapid questions. So uh, the first one is, what is your definition of whiteness? Uh, whiteness is uh, uh, a category that was constructed to incorporate different uh, people from Europe uh, into one single group that uh, had a relation of domination over uh, people who were uh, enslaved. What is the root of racism? The, the root of racism is these relations of domination and subordination that came through the fact of uh, European domination over the rest of the world and from slavery uh, that became represented in terms of socially constructed artificial uh, categories. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view and is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Um, the, I think there's no question that uh, a political ideal will involve the abolition of race. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Sometimes. 
Is there an antidote to racism? And if so, what is it? The antidote to racism is, um, the, is, is the emancipatory politics that I've been advocating. Thank you so much, Asad, for playing along. Um, if people want to purchase your book, where should they head? Is there a bookstore of choice that you would like to recommend or flag? You can buy it directly from the publisher, Verso. You can go on their website and order it there. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, Asad Haider, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.